Hello, and welcome to another episode of Gaming Couch, where we sit back and talk about video games, board games, card games, and the like. So pull up a chair, put your feet up, let's have a good time. Hello, hello, hello. So yeah, about the, the, the 24-hour delay. Well, first off, if there's ever a delay, I just want to do it next day at 5 p.m. just so that the time stays the same, like, it's always 5 p.m. I don't want to, like, throw out random times for delayed episodes. I only want to do that if it's, like, you know, like the NYC Part 1 kind of thing where it just kind of pops up in my mind that I want to do something. That'll be the only time I have, like, a weird time slot. Otherwise, any delay, expect it. It'll be 5 p.m., okay? Uh, also, really, just summer's pretty much over i'm have to get ready for work for the next school year etc cetera, etc cetera, list of things yada 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 uh i just wanted to give more time to the content today so i'm like fuck it give myself an extra day to just make sure kind of like ironed out it's what i want it to be you know that kind of stuff double check the script etc etc that, that kind of stuff so as much as like yeah i want to do every Sunday at 5, like I originally planned with this kind of, like, revival of doing this whole thing with the podcasting. I also want to keep true to, like, kind of going over the content more. So if that requires... I'd rather delay something and kind of take a step back from the whole Sunday at 5 every week thing if that means I can be a little better with the content, you know. So it won't happen all the time. But again, now that I got the Twitter, I'll keep keep you all up to date on everything. So, uh... Yeah, that was just a recap of that. So anyway, about the whole thing today, about the content today, about, you know, what it is we want to talk about, why it was delayed, et cetera, et cetera. Well, luckily, I've gotten back on to the role-playing train again. Like, It's been a while since we've talked about Dungeons & Dragons or anything else kind of like role-playing related. And it's been amazing. Like the past week or two, I've had a chance to do a number of sessions both in Cyberpunk 2020, you know, getting ready for the release of 2077 coming out this coming year. I've also done a number of D&D 5th edition sessions, like joining a friends group, starting up some solo campaigns, playing in some solo campaigns, which, granted, they're really fun because you get to do whatever you want with the GM, and the GM can do the same to you, so it's amazing. I mean, I also like a D&D burlesque show the other day, which... I mean, it it was amazing. I didn't know what to expect. That's kind of why I enjoyed it also, because I'm like, it's D&D burlesque. I don't know what the fuck they're going to be doing, but I'm going to go, and it's going to be a grand old time. So that was a lot of fun. So yeah, I've gotten so much into D&D again. I wanted to take some time to look at something. You know, one of the greatest things about D&D is the monsters themselves. You know, the story arcs, and the campaign narrative and all that stuff, that's part of what drives the game. The other part are the monsters, or just the foes in general. Like Maybe they're not a monstrosity thingy. You know, it could just be the king or something is your main foe. But there's something there. There is some sort of villain that the players are bound to interact with at some point. They have to confront at some point. Now... You could definitely have a campaign that is mostly role-playing. That's totally fine. Heck, my campaigns are kind of like that. I mean, I've talked about this before. Anytime I have combat in D&D, it usually lasts for like two or three hours because it's the only combat. Like, we'll do whole sessions without combat, or we'll be playing for like seven hours because there's a lot of role-playing, a lot of like setting the scene and doing stuff. And then when combat shows up, it's not just small things. You're not. It's not just cannon fodder. It's something significant. I love it. You know, I love it. We talked about settings of games before where you need a mix of stuff. The narrative's important. The story hooks are important. You know, how the player's engaging is important. And in D&D, there's two types of engagement. There's the role-playing aspect and there's the encounters. And because of how diverse the classes are and how long a game can go from level 1 to 20, at least printed in the books, you know, you could homebrew past 20 if you wanted to, you need to have a large selection of creatures to face. So, yeah, there's some creatures that are just pure cannon fodder. You know, there needs to be. If you're starting a campaign at level one, you need cannon fodder. You need those goblins and those zombies and kobolds and stuff like that to throw at people. But also, on the flip side, 
what happens if you have an epic? What happens if you have a campaign that goes from 1 to 20, which hopefully that happens for me. I'm close. We've had a campaign that's gone from level 1 to level 11 at this point, and I really want to push for 20. And by the time you hit level 20, cannon fodder is not going to do anymore. You, you need some significant stuff there. So creatures range greatly. There are so many of them. I was actually really tempted to count the number of creatures in the monster manual. You know, the actual stat block. So, like, not just say skeletons one. It'd be, like, the three types of skeletons. So, it'd be three creatures there. I was tempted to do that, but I didn't. Because I figured that it's a lot of counting. It's a lot of looking at the fine print. And if I mess up, I have to do it over again. So, I'm like, let's not do that. Let's just take a chance to kind of talk about, like, you know, I want to do these lists now. And straight up as corny as it sounds, like, the five best creatures I feel in D&D 5th. I'm going to reference 3.5 here and there because that was my introduction to D&D. But I'm looking at 5th edition. Like whatever's printed in the 5th edition books for monsters and what I think are like the five best. And of course, it, it's a list. Like there are some rules and things like that. So first off, a big one is no homebrew and no non-official releases. You know, I know Cobalt Press did the like the Book of Beasts or something like that. And I've looked through it. I don't own it, but I've looked through it, and I think there's some amazing stuff in there. All right? However, to prevent any, like, craziness of, like, you know, maybe I found this really cool monster someone made posted online, I want to just stick to the pure books, things that the guys at Dungeons & Dragons themselves created and published. All right? I'm not knocking any homebrew stuff. I think I do plenty of it myself. I'll take monster templates and modify them. It's part of the fun. I just want to look at official stuff okay and then on top of that the reason why i'm not using cobalt press i only want to talk about the books that i own because these are books that i have my possession i had a chance to look them over i've had a chance to use them in campaigns and things like that so i'm looking at though limited just the three that i have i have of course standard monster manual mordekind's tome of foes and volo's guide all right i'm just pulling from those three so it's a little limited there's plenty in here to, to look at though and, of course, no repeated categories. You know, let's say I mention a particular demon that I really like. It's really cool. I can't mention any other demons. You know, even if they're two different demons or, like, you know, I mentioned the bone devil and then I want to talk about the chain devil later. I can't do that. They're both devils. All right? So I'm keeping that apart. But also on that note, a rank can go to either a single monster alone or a group. So, like, I can say a storm giant. I can talk about the storm giant being really awesome as on its own, as a category, or, or sorry, a rank, or I can talk about giants as a whole, the whole category of giants as a rank. But again, if I do that, if I talk about storm giants, I can't talk about giants in general, all right? It's one or the other. And no appendix creatures, you know, like the generic thug sack blocks and the cows and everything, as much as they're very useful for filling up, like, an urban encounter or a quick trash mob to fight in a dungeon, they're great, but I don't want to use them some because there's no context around them. Like, there's no entry for them. It's just, here's a generic thug. Here's a generic wizard. Here's a generic hyena. You know, I, I'm looking at things that have lore to it. You know, that's part of my ranking is not just the stats. You know, what's the lore around it? What's the purpose of the creature? And then not only that, as much as I'm not touching homebrew, like I said, these creatures can be modified. So how easy can this creature be woven into a campaign? You know? Some monsters with a very slight tweak can be very unique and very different and provide great story arcs. Like, currently, my main campaign, the players are up against an army of gnolls because the leader is a sentient gnoll. It has demonic powers. It has intelligence. It's able to speak. So you're not just having a wild pack of, you know, bipedal hyenas rampaging throughout. You actually have a guy that can control them. So, yeah, maybe a monster can be tweaked easily based on the lore of the game, to make it interesting. So those are like my restrictions on this list, the rules of what I'm looking at and how I'm deciding things, all right? So with that, just time to kind of roll out the red carpet and, you know, get started. And aptly enough, at the bottom of the list is, of course, very basic creatures, the kobolds, all right? And I only speak it that way because it's ironic because kobolds are very low level, you know? So... They're rank five. They're usually bottom of the barrel anyway. Now, I love the start of a campaign. It's one of my favorite things. 
it's the same thing with like a video game. When I play a video game, the two big things I look at is the beginning and the end. You know, the start of a game sets everything. The scene is being set for the players. They're finding their way in this world. They're learning about it. Things like that. So it's really important that you hook your characters then early, both as a GM in a campaign and a game developer making a video game. How is the story grabbing your players? And then, of course, at the end is the climactic finish. It's really important. So the start of the campaign, which is so fun, it also allows a lot of really cool little fights, like little minions to fight for the big baddie. You know, level one characters are mostly the same, but the exception of, like, clerics, no one has an archetype yet. You know, every fire is the same at level one. Maybe it just uses a different weapon. Every wizard is the same at level one. They just might have, like, one or two different spells. You know, there's no archetypes yet. There's no origin things yet. Not that you're, you're a scrub, all right? So the mods that you fight are also very simple, and kobolds, I think, provide the best fodder for low-level fights. You know, they're relatively weak. They're easy to cut down. You know, a fighter can fell a kobold in one swing, if they have the right weapon, or a ranger can take down a kobold real quickly just using their innate abilities at level one. And even like a fireball or firebolt, you know, a wizard casting the cantrip firebolt can kill a kobold in one shot. However, in numbers, in large numbers, they benefit from pack tactics and could overrun a much more powerful foe. You know, if you have five kobolds up against a fighter, that fighter's going to go down. He might take some of them down with him, but the odds of the fighter lasting through a fight by himself against five kobolds, it's not looking good, you know? So I like that. I kind of just like that straightforward, just here's a bunch of kobolds, you know? As you kill more of them, you get the upper hand because they start losing their pack tactics, you know? But I also like the lore. I think the lore and the culture of the kobolds are really cool. You know, they have a direct connection to dragons in some way. You know, a lot of times... Being Dungeons and Dragons, a dragon gets involved at some point, whether it's the main antagonist of the story or it's just held up in some dungeon somewhere where you can raid its lair and get treasures. Kobolds have that direct connection in their blood and also by worshipping them. And so, for the most part, kobolds will only answer to a powerful force, like a sorcerer or an actual dragon that's in the lair that they live in. I think that's really cool because starting the campaign with kobolds, you can then later introduce a dragon, you know, or a drake even as some big ending arc. You know, like let's say you're doing a level 20 campaign from 1 to 20. By level 3 or 4, the players go up against like a young dragon or something that these kobolds were worshipping. It's a great starting arc and it can be fit to any campaign. And then not only that, I liked how Volo's guide gave us more information on them. First off was the Cobalt Scale Sorcerer. You know, talking about early combat, it's small diversity, you know, in terms of Cobalts, including Volo's Guide. There's the basic Cobalt, there's the Inventor, there's the Sorcerer, the Winged Cobalt, and then the Dragon Shield. So there's not a lot of diversity there, but there's enough going forward that you can teach new players how to manage a busy battlefield. You know, imagine this, okay? You got a scale sorcerer, which is not incredibly powerful. It's still relatively weak, low AC, low health. All right, can be chopped down pretty quickly in a turn or two if played right. However, it also has access to enough damaging spells to be a real threat. Like, it has, I think, two uses of Scorching Ray, which, being a challenge level one monster, you're probably going to encounter it as level two or three, maybe a level four party. That Scorching Ray could take out your fighter. There's enough damage there from those three rays that the fighter can get dropped instantly. Or if you have a number of ranged combatants, it can split Scorching Ray between all three of them and pop a lot of health off a number of party members, forcing the healer to have to do something about it. Hopefully have an AoE heal or something. So they're a real threat. And then on top of that, with that small diversity, they're all Cobalt Dragon Shields now, thanks to Volo's Guide. You put a Sorcerer behind two or three Dragon Shields, throw in some regular Cobalts there to just add some numbers, and now... The players aren't just getting thrown into a combat anymore. Like, maybe the first few rounds of combat, especially for new players, are just hack and slash, just teaching the basic mechanics. You run into a couple of kobolds and a nest. You, you gotta fight them, all right? Great way to teach basic mechanics, and as the players get an understanding of those mechanics, 
you then throw in that scale sorcerer backed up by some dragon shields, and now it's, okay, how do we handle the battlefield now? Because there are multiple types of enemies. It's not just a kobold with a dagger. It's kobolds with sword, with shields and spears, kobold shooting fire at his fingertips. You know, they're not going down as easily anymore. How can we handle this properly? Where can we put our resources and put our expertise of the field into play to our advantage? You know, does the fighter charge for the scale sorcerer? Or does he let the dragon shield stop him midway and he keeps them busy while the ranger and the wizard in the back start popping shots at the sorcerer because they don't have to worry about melee combat right now. The fighter gets it handled. These questions start coming into play and the players learn how to work together. You know, it, it's a game about collaboration. Sometimes arguments, when healthy, can be really good for a game. Like, you're playing as characters in a game. You're playing as, like, living flesh in a game. You're not going to always agree with each other. So this kind of helps show that, yeah, there are times you're going to have to work together. Even though you have your differences, you might not always agree, you'll work together in combat. You can achieve great things. So kobolds have a great way of introducing that, at least statistic-wise. But I also like their layers. You know, Volos goes into some big detail of how the layers are set up for various creatures. And kobolds, I feel, especially low-level, pose a huge challenge if you attack them in their lair. You know, kobolds really only live with their own kind and maybe in the lair of a dragon because they worship it, okay? But even if they're in the lair of a dragon, the area where the kobolds really tend to stay would be in underground tunnels that they've dug out for themselves to live in. And since kobolds are naturally small size and most player characters would be medium you're going to be squeezing through those small tunnels to try and deal with these kobolds. So now you don't have the room to maneuver because you're in small quarters having to crouch down or crawl on all fours, and now you have to fight these things. That alone is challenging. And then because of how weak kobolds are, they're naturally clever and sneaky, and they come up with very unique traps. That's why I love the inventor also. It's, you know, I can throw a basket of rock grubs at you, or I have this slingshot that has... You know, flaming rocks on it. Like they, they come up with these unique ways to fight foes because they know they can't win in a toe-to-toe fight. So if you're trying to take on a layer of kobolds, like, yeah, you're going to have a dozens of kobolds to fight, and God knows what traps in that lair that you have to contend with. And some of them are going to be disgusting. I think it's, it's a fun module to do. Like, I've started working on a module for levels like 1 to 5 that involves taking on a kobold lair. And it's proving challenging to make because I have to think differently now. I'm not just thinking of, like, you're going into a crypt where everyone can fit in nice and easy. It's, no, you're crawling through a tunnel that's maybe three feet high, you know, three feet tall at its highest point, and the rooms are relatively small because it's full of kobolds. So they don't need it large. Like, that's a challenge for me as a GM, and I think it'd be a fun challenge for players. Now, obviously, quick side note, you know, goblins could go into the spot due to similar style like low level fodder fun way to introduce game mechanics stuff like that the reason why i give this to kobolds though is i feel goblins often act as like foot soldiers for a greater power and rarely work on their own or have their own layers you know usually they'll be like a goblinoid war camp led by a hobgoblin that has goblins as troops all right Yes, kobolds worship dragons, and we'll sometimes live in a dragon's lair, but for the most part, kobolds are kind of their own thing. They have their own individuality. They have their own identity. They have their own unique lairs that are separate from anyone else. That, I think, gives them a little edge in terms of, like, being low-level. So, yeah, that's the start. You know, just ease in. I, I like kobolds. I think they're they're fun. And also, because of how weak and skittish they could be, I think it's a fun way to, like, introduce intimidation. Like, hey, you're starting to win the fight. There's only three kobolds left. Try intimidating them. You know, players can start thinking about other ways to circumvent combat. Okay? What about the creatures that you can't do that? You know, something like oozes. All right? Oozes, I give number four. Right after kobolds, I want to talk about oozes. All right? They sound silly at times. Like, it's ooze. It's a pile of goop. And some of them have the word, like, jelly or pudding in their name and hell the gelatinous cube you know you look at the image it looks like a block of blue jello (laughs) 
Like, they sound silly. They look silly at times. Yet they're some of the most terrifying things to fight in the game. I remember back in 3.5, throughout the three monster manuals they had officially published, there was a good number of creatures that could mess with you directly, like could damage a character's stats or destroy their equipment or affect their armor. There was like a good number. I'm not saying there were hundreds, but there was enough that you could have some diversity in ways of like messing with people. Fifth edition lost a lot of that charm. Even with like some of the newest that they were publishing, there was very few creatures that directly did damage you. Obviously, mind flyers still have that because they eat your brains. And like there's the rust monster that can eat away your metal armor. Those are the only two that immediately come to mind as things that can do that, which is why oozes, I think, kind of stick out. They also have that ability. You know, they have the ability to dissolve just about any equipment or any material. So fighting them can be an issue, especially for that clad in metal warrior paladin you have. And then not only that, they're they're oozes. They're just they're just that. They're just a pile of goop. They're just nothing else there. There's really no brain or anything else. It's just a pile of goop. So they have a large number of resistances and immunities compared to other creatures, especially at their challenge rating. I mean, you're looking at Grey Ooze is a half, Orca Jelly is a two, the Cube's a two, and then Black Pudding is a four. All right, I'm looking at the standard Monster Meal. Relatively low challenge rating, so you can counter them early game, yet you, know, you read off damage immunities, Acid Cold, Lightning, Slashing for the Black Pudding, the jelly also is immune to lightning and slashing and is resistant to acid. They also have the condition immunities of being blind or charmed or deafened, frightened, prone, you know, all that typical stuff that normal people with senses would have. They're immune to all that. And now think about it. Think about if you ever played a D&D campaign and you were a third or fourth level party, you would be of level to fight oozes. Think about your kit, what you have. Your spellcasters with the exception of maybe one or two spells, depending on what they picked up, will have mostly spells that do fire damage, acid damage, cold damage. You know, depending on the ooze you fight, it's completely immune to it or it's resistant to it. Your frontline fighters, you know, your barbarian, your paladin, your fighter, maybe a dual-wielding ranger, if you have that, probably don't have magic gear or have very, very simple magic gear that's not that effective. Won't do a lot of damage to the oozes because they're resistant to it. And then only that, you know, corrode metal, a gray ooze. If the ooze touches it, you get a damage penalty or an AC penalty, and as soon as it hits a negative five, the thing's gone. And you just started this campaign, you're already losing shit. <laughs> because you you poked gray goop. You're losing stuff already. It's... It's kind of terrifying. You know, it's not like horror story levels of terrifying, but the fact of like, yeah, there are things out there in this world that your GM came up with that will just devour anything you have. And honestly, there's not much you can do about it, at least not now. So even if you do stop that ooze or you do get into that fight with that gelatinous cube and win, someone's bound to have lost something. You know, scars will remain, like lost equipment, permanent damage, something got corroded, someone got an acid burn, something happened. Because oozes just, they don't care. They're mindless. If if anyone has ever seen The Blob, all right, back in the 50s, 1950s, the movie The Blob was made, which was just a thing from space that did exactly that. It just kept eating stuff, and there's really no way to stop it. So the mad lads at D&D... Straight up did that. They took that creature idea from the blob, and boom, we have oozes. I'm not saying that's exactly what inspired them, but the connection is there, and it's can be kind of scary. Like, I remember a campaign I was doing once in 3.5, and we're do- walking down the hallway, and luckily, one of us spotted the gelatinous cube in the hallway. For those of you who don't know, a cube that is motionless, or oozes in general that are motionless, you can't really tell they're there. Like a gray ooze that sits on a cave wall, motionless, looks like rock or brick, so you can't tell it's there. Same thing with a cube. If it sits motionless, it could take up the entire space of a hallway, and you'll never see it until you walk through it. So one of the guys spotted it, and we're like, 
we're going to go that way around it. We didn't even fight it. We, we straight up avoided it because we knew fighting it, someone might get eaten and killed, or at least our fighter would have lost his armor and his sword, and then he would have been useless for the rest of the dungeon. So, yeah, we just, we just walked away. You know, and with that mindlessness, you can just drop him in anywhere. You know, as a, as a GM, like I said, we're just walking through a dungeon, and bam, there's a cube there. Because they don't care. They just want to eat things. So you can fill a crypt with them. Like, maybe there's a crypt of rotting corpses. That news found its way in there, just eating away at the bodies over time. Maybe, you know, you have that orc war chief who's purely sadistic, and he has a pit of ooze. And from time to time, he just throws prisoners of war in there to be eaten away at the oozes because on the flip side, he can use them defensively. You know, if that pit is in a strategic location of the war camp, intruders have to go around it or possibly get pushed in while invading. You can just have that. They just do that. And then we have Mordekainen's Tome of Foes. You know, we now, we finally have Jublix, I think is how you pronounce it. You know, the OG demon slime, the guy who kind of created the first slimes. You know, first off, the terrifying thing is, as they say, in the presence of Jublix, oozes can get some form of intelligence. So first off, that's a terrifying thought alone. This mindless shapeless blob suddenly can start thinking while it's in the presence of a much larger and much smarter blob. But also imagine this. For whatever God knows what reason, let's say you're an adventuring party and you're going through the abyss. I'm not going to question why you're there. Something fucking happened. You're traveling through the abyss, right? And you get into a large room somewhere and then the walls just come to life as oozes start dropping down everywhere. And then in front of you, Jublix just rises up from the primordial ooze. You're not getting out of there in one piece because of how corrosive oozes are that they can chew away at any material. A party that gets into a combat like that, someone's going to die. And those who don't die, you're probably going to lose a lot of stuff in that combat because of their just pure ability to eat away at anything. I really enjoy it. I haven't had a chance to use oozes a lot in my dungeons. I did have one dungeon that had some oozes in it. But again, the players just avoided it. They're saying, nah. Like, they were already hurting. They already lost one of the party members who got banished. So they avoided this one room altogether that had a bunch of oozes. And you know what? It was smart of them. Because it was a fighter and a rogue. They would have lost their gear to the oozes. It, it's a scary thing. It, it can be a scary thing for a small party. Especially a wounded one to encounter a single ooze. All right, let's move on to the next one. I'm going to put... I got the books in front of me, so I'm going to put away one of the books. I don't need it anymore. I'm going to crack out the yellow one. Because I want to talk about, for the third slot, the Skull Lord. All right? Now, first off, about the Skull Lord, I want to say this. Just think of the name, okay? If you've ever seen a portrait of the Skull Lord from Mordekainen's Tome of Foes, I feel if you took, like, kind of a portrait shot of them, like maybe just like their torso up, and you put the name Skull Lord above it, you got yourself a kick-ass heavy metal album cover. Because, <laughs> like, it's a Skull Lord. I mean, that is metal. That, that's that's straight-up metal, okay? So first off, kudos to the Skull Lords for having that behind them. They have a really awesome just look about them. All right. Now, following up, I feel Skull Lord, that's exactly what the undead needed in 5th edition, all right? And here's what I mean. They had some sort of, like, bone commander type thing in previous editions, and I remember ones particularly that had, like, four arms and could do, like, four sword attacks a turn. That's totally badass. It was just this guy would just walk up and cut you down, all right? That was his only purpose as a skeleton, all right? And now in 5th edition... You know, we have Skull Lords, which they might not have those four arms and all those physical prowess, but they have spellcasting power. And they can also summon skeletons, which me, I'm a lover for anything. That, any, like, ability to summon things, I love it. You know, I just made a new character that wants to be called the Storm Queen. It's a sorcerer that uses a lot of, like, storm magic. I was sent to pick up the Dust Devil spell 
from uh, Xanthor's Guide to Everything. Because so I'm like, I can summon a Dust Devil. I don't even care what the rest of the spell did. In fact, I can summon something. So I love Scholars for that. Their ability to just summon creatures to their side during combat. And technically endlessly. Like They can only have up to five skeletons summoned at a time. But if those skeletons die, I can just re-summon them. So I think that's amazing. So they're a big threat. Spellcasters that can keep throwing mobs at you so they can keep casting spells safely, that's a real threat to any party, all right? And honestly, the spells are nothing to stick your nose up at. They get up to 7th level spells, and they get some pretty good things, you know, like Finger of Death and Eye Bite at the higher end, which can do some nasty stuff to players and also can do a hell of a lot of damage. Finger Finger of Death is a very powerful spell. But I also like the control they have, you know, on the lower end, even their cantrips and their first level spells, you have things like, you know, Magic Hand, Mage Hand, they can pull stuff back to them if they lose something, which is great if they get disarmed. But also things like Chill Chest, Shocking Grass, Ray of Frost, things that like slow players down, Force and Roll with Disadvantage, or let the Skull Lord roll with Advantage if they're wearing metal. You have Thunder Wave so they can knock enemies away. So they have some really good control. And then they have Haste, where they cast Haste on themselves or someone else. Boom, suddenly more attacks coming out. can be a serious problem. And speaking of attacks alone, you know, again, just looking at the stat block for now, the Skull Lord, with its basic attack, which can do three times on a turn, yeah, it does 1d3 bludgeoning damage. Okay, cool, it's a staff. But the fact that you throw in that 46 necrotic damage, so most of the damage it deals to you in melee is necrotic, Compared to the other damage types, you know, fire, cold, lightning, poison, you know, the the damage types that really dominate spellcasting, compared to those, Necrotic has few resistances. There's very few magical equipments, at least in the book, you know, in the standard books, that give some defense to Necrotic. You could obviously create something for a campaign that involves a lot of Necrotic damage, but if you don't and you stick to just the base stuff... That's a threat. Like I said, Necrotic, that's going to punch through most defenses. Very few people are going to be able to resist that. Again, compared to, like, Fire and Lightning, where Dragonborns can just say, I'm immune, I'm resistant to this damage type because I was born that way. They can't do it for Necrotic, so fuck off. <laughs> so that's that's something going on. And the lore itself. I think the lore really brings in a lot of opportunities for Skull Lords. So just reading out of the book, just straight from the Tome of Foes, this whole thing that happened with Fecna and Kass, when she was betrayed, she decided to bring together all of her generals and captains and other higher-ups and fuse them together. She bound them together and created the Skull Lords. So since the Skull Lord has three heads, it's essentially these three different people that were fused together into this undead force. So one, which pretty cool is the entire idea of saying you know it straight up says that one of their worst enemies you know Skolod's worst enemy is itself because it has three different heads essentially it has three different personalities butting against each other so that can be a serious problem but then not only that I think about this and like okay the Skolod was created by three different people and they were like generals or other higher ups that betrayed people Okay, standard Skull Lord only has one physical attack. It has one basic attack, and everything else is spell-related for the most part. Well, what's to say there's a skull, not a Skull Lord out there that wields a battle axe instead? Maybe those three lieutenants that were fused together were all, like, frontline fighters. You know, like, fighters, barbarians, maybe some paladins in there for some spell casting, like a fallen paladin. Now you can tweak the Skull Lord stat block... You can cut back on the number of spells it has. I can still keep some very basic spells. You know, obviously keep its ability to summon other skeletons. But maybe you make it where it was a war chief before it died. And now all of a sudden, its abilities focus more on, I have a big sword that does a lot of damage. And I also have control of the field. Like the uh, the fighter archetype, Battlemaster, that is able to move creatures about, gain advantage using superiority dice and stuff like that. And boom, you take a very good template of a creature and just tweak it a little bit to give it a little new flavor that adds some history to the game. You know, maybe the players found out about these three great barbarian chieftains from 
a time long ago that had some great loot. And the player's like, fuck yeah, let's go get that loot. And they find out that what actually happened to those barbarians is through some dark magic and betrayal, they were fused together into a Skull Lord. And now you're encountering a Skull Lord that instead of standing in the back shooting you with spells, it's swinging wildly, you know, five times a turn with battle axes and summoning skeletons and letting out horrendous shouts because that's that was its past. That's the three that are now fused together. That's where they came from. I love it. I, I love that idea. And not only that, like, it happens. It, it definitely happens. We've all been there where there's metagaming. Someone thinks about, hey, I know that creature from, you know, the monster manual. Uh, I know what it's weak against or something like that. And, well, you take a skull or if you tweak it just a little bit, suddenly the metagame's broken. You don't have to worry about that guy that metagames all the time. You know, if you tell him to not do it and you talk about it, he still does. Well, fuck you. Now you can't. I took a template and tweaked it a little bit, and Skull Lords have a great template, I feel, because of their lore. There's a lot you can do with them. Also, I mean, let's be real here. Come on. You can totally imagine a giant horde of skeletons marching forward, and at the back, raised up on a throne, is a Skull Lord just shredding it on a metal guitar. You know, it's a Skull Lord. Just death metal it up. It would look absolutely fucking amazing. You've got to admit that. Okay, you 100% got to admit that. And in fact, I think I just came up with an idea for a bard-styled Skull Lord for my campaign. I might get back to all you on that if that becomes a thing, and I will totally share it with all of you if I go forward with it. Be so fucking awesome. All right, let's move on. Two more to go. Okay, we're nearing the end of this list, and I think, honestly, this is... a uh, we're going to see some some big players right now in terms of uh, encounters, okay? Now, even in a low magic campaign, because of player interaction or story hooks and like that, odds are the players are bound to start jumping around the planes of existence. I mean, who can blame them? It's a cool concept. With all the different planes being out there dedicated to various things, you know, like you have the Abyss... You have the Nine Hells, you have the Elemental Planes, you have all these different things that could be explored for various reasons. It's no wonder that people would start poking around out there, or GMs would start using story hooks that bring players out there. I don't blame them. I think it's smart. You know, there's a lot of spells that also allow that to happen, like Dimension... Well, not Dimension Door, but there's other spells. You know what I'm talking about. Spells that can hop between planes, or the I mean, of plan, interplanar travel from the DM's guide. It can happen. You know, and then, of course, there's the astral plane, all the way on the edge of existence, that is kind of like the gatekeeper to the outer planes. You know, you got to go through the astral plane to find these ancient portals that can lead to these places beyond. You know, these mysterious places that people really have never gone to. You know, and of course, let's be honest again, we've all been a spellcast at some point, and... Limits are meant to be pushed and broken, so we're going to keep pushing our limits, and should we get planar travel, we're probably going to try and find out how the hell to get through the astral plane and start poking around the outer planes. I mean, it's there, why not? We have the power, might as well see if we can do it. So, of course, anyone who has that, you know, it, you're poking around the astral plane for too long, and then all you know, next thing you know, bam, you might run into an astral dreadnought. Now, again, this comes right from Mordekainen's Tome of Foes. It's one of the first entries. And I remember first reading up on the actual Dreadnought. And my main campaign right now that has that whole, like, war going on with the gnolls, well, there's some interplanar travel that is happening. That's the reason why demons are infesting the material plane. So I'm going to be inviting the players at some point to dick around the other planes when I saw actual Dreadnought, I'm like, I have to. Like, that's a main story arc because I'm dicking around out there and having a Dreadnought show up. Just this hulking, gargantuan monstrosity that can negate magic just by looking. You know, suddenly trainer Pavel, trainer Pavel, trainer, trainer, I am sorry. Planar travel, suddenly a bad idea for one of these big guys showing up. All right. You know, I, I just mentioned it. First off, they got the whole anti-magic cone 
So it just looks in a direction, and then a 150-foot cone, which essentially is bad for anyone, because other than monks being fucking monks, excuse me, and their absurd movement, no one's going to get out of that in time, and you shut down all magic in there. Magic items are now just non-magical mundane items, which, again, the Dreadnought, it has resistance to non-magical attacks from bludgeoning, piercing, and slashing. There's a problem. Your spellcaster, completely neutered. You know, the Dreadnought doesn't have resistances or immunities to magical damage, but you can just shut it down, so now you're... Fuck it. Any spellcasters, any wizards, any sorcerers, even your cleric or paladin for the heals, you're fucked. You gotta spread out. And this thing is huge. It's gargantuan size. So in game turn, that's like, I don't know, 25 or 30 feet wide. You have a problem now, because you can't all stand in front of it. There's no magic allowed there. So that, first off, is just, that's just a problem, you know? And then beyond that, you know, other than the anti-magic cone, it's a pretty simple thing. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward thing, you know? It's a legendary creature, so obviously it has legendary resistance. Its weapons are considered magical. You know, the standard stuff for legendary-style creatures. It just eats people. Just, it just attacks and eats, and anything it swallows is sent to a demiplane, and stuck there forever until it can escape somehow, or the Dreadnought is killed. So that, okay, that's a bit of a problem. But that's really it. Like, there's no other... Really, there's nothing going on. There's nothing tricky about it, which is what I love. You know, they were created by Tharzadun to serve this simple purpose of guarding the Outer Plains. And by simply existing, you know, they, they, sim- they have just a desire to hunt travelers... They serve that purpose very well. You know, they're not completely mindless. But yeah, all they care about is just existing and going about eating people that are traveling through the plains. Because, well, they're there. You know? What what else is there to say? So I like that. You don't have to think about a National Dreadnought. You don't have to think of, like, a reason for it to be there. Which is why I kind of like it. It can just, it can be added in for people who are traveling throughout the plains as a fun little, like, unique encounter. You know, like, maybe there's some special loot that they can get by killing it, and since it's such a powerful thing, it's, you know, a challenge for the players that they can do if they want. But I think also the big thing is its most terrifying feature. It's a very low chance of happening, okay? It can only happen on an opponent's turn because it has to use a legendary action, which means it can only do it after someone else's turn. But the fact that it can sever the silver cord that a character has. Now, silver cords only come into play through the Astral Projection spell, which is a very powerful high-level spell where up to nine people, spellcaster included, are sent to the Astral Plane as an Astral Projection. Okay, so it's not physically them. It's kind of like, think of like your consciousness just getting thrown out there into the Astral Plane. So as much as your projection can get hurt and you could eventually run out of HP, no harm comes to your physical body that's currently suspended in the real world. So your real body, you don't have to eat or sleep or anything like that, and essentially it's protected. And so when you quote-unquote die in the plane, the cord pulls you back to your body in reality, wherever that is, and you wake up. All right? So... That spell's really good. It can let players play around in the Astral Planes and, again, get some pretty cool story arcs and other hooks and stuff like that going because of it. So now the Dreadnought, well, like I said, it can cut that cord. And even though it doesn't say anything specific anywhere in any of the books and it doesn't say it anywhere in the Astral Projection spell itself, all the Projection spell says is that should you die, quote-unquote, in the Astral Plane, your Projection is pulled back to reality with the silver cord that it has attached to it. So if this big holy monstrosity, this dreadnought, cuts that cord, well, there's only really one thing I can theorize that'll happen. You're gone. Forever. There's no way for your consciousness, your projection into the astral plane, to be brought back to your body because the cord is gone. So if everyone else quote-unquote dies or is sent away from the astral plane, you're now left alone there. Forever. And your physical body, back home, 
just sitting there forever. The chances of an astral jet not doing that are low. You know, they have to use their psychic projection ability, which is a legendary action, so it has to happen after someone else goes. And they need to score a critical hit. That's a problem. Oh, wait, no, I read that wrong. Okay, so, sorry, I read a little bit wrong. It has nothing to do with its reaction on legendary actions. I just reread it. But yeah, if it just scores a critical hit, okay, it only has two attacks, a bite and a claw. So its odds are still low for getting a critical hit, a 1 in 20 chance, essentially. But still, if it scores that critical hit and you're using actual projection, it cuts the cord. There's no check. There's no check happening. It just it snips the cord. You're now left alone with that thing. That's it. I think that's, again, a horrifying thought, which is great for a high-level party, because I feel, you know, low-level, obviously, you're worried about dying. You know, you don't have a lot of HP. You don't really have any equipment. Getting poked by a cobalt dagger could kill you, especially if you're some sort of spellcaster. So late game, when you're going to start dicking around in the astral plane, you feel powerful, because now, all of a sudden, a dagger won't kill you outright. You have higher HP. You have a lot of gear. You got a lot of spells. You got some powerful companions with you. Maybe a barbarian that can rip the head off of anyone he faces, or a paladin who's just so mighty that it has so many aura spells that it keeps you alive. You don't feel like much can stop you. And then suddenly, you run into this dreadnought. And if you run into it while using astral projection, you're screwed. And if you're not using astral projection, you're still screwed because since you're physically there in your real body, well, if you die, you're dead. It's it's scary. I'm not saying it's the most powerful creature in the game, but it's a it's a biggie. It's a big one to face, even at a high level. So where kobolds do great early game for having some fun encounters and making some unique threats with the traps they use and things like that, an actual dreadnought on the higher end of that campaign, that same campaign that you started poking at kobolds, you're now up against a dreadnought and you're you're back to being that level one noob again where you're like, fuck. My magic is useless here because the anti-magic field, if it hits me, it can make me stranded here. And if it eats me, I'm sent to some demi-plane that I can't escape from. Suddenly, the playing field is even again between you and the enemy. There will be a day I use an actual Dreadnought, and it will be amazing. So what about number one? All right. I talked a lot about Astral Dreadnoughts and you know, the love I have for them for what they can do. And then talking about like other things like the Skull Lords and Kobolds and these other, you know, unique encounters you can come up with. So from those four, you know, how do I pick the fifth one to be number one? Well, straight up, number one is Justice Incarnate. Okay. We were just talking about planar travel. And there's a possibility that in a campaign you might end up at the Hall of Concordance in Sigil, all right? And there, a lot of contracts get forged that bind two different parties to some agreement, as contracts do, except this is a contract that stretches across the cosmos. You know, it's made in this unique place in the planes of existence. And from there, from forging this contract, a Marut shows up, M-A-R-U-T. Straight up justice incarnate. And this is why I, I think this is like the one of the best story arcs you can come up with. All right. So here you have a construct that cares for nothing except the contract placed inside it. All right. Any contract is forged. This is coming straight from the lore of the Marut, Marut itself. And I'll have some theories later. This contract gets forged between these two parties. All right, and it's stored inside the Marut that comes to life, and all it cares about is that that contract is fulfilled by both parties. Okay, so essentially, the law is the word here. However, because it is a construct that follows the law of the contract put within it, it doesn't have the same weakness that most creatures or villains have. You cannot smart it, you can't trick it. 
avoid it or convince it in any way. I mean, even like rabid beasts can be tricked with bait and things like that. But Maru, no, it only cares for what that contract says. So if you breach that contract, the Marut does not care. Does not care for your reasoning. Doesn't care for any double talk you do. You breach the contract, you're in trouble. And it's going to come get you and bring you back. Because you're, that's it. You, you can't do anything about that. There's no outsmarting it. And then not only that, you know, since sigil and these contracts being forged they also don't care for double talk or anything like that the contract has to be laid out clearly you know if the contract's too vague they won't take it all right if it's not spelled out clearly they won't take it i mean granted they don't care if you fully understand the contract but it has the contract has to be clear enough that everyone can understand it you know it's straightforward what the purpose of the contract is so marut will follow that to a t period and then not only that, you know, let's say it shows through your door to bring you back. Understandably, not everyone's going to like that. All right, you breach the contract, tomorrow it shows up, you're in trouble. Sometimes you're not going to want to go and you're going to want to fight it. You know, you, you don't want to go back. You breach the contract for a reason. You refuse to fess up for your crimes, essentially. Fighting it is the worst fucking thing you can do. It is a terrible, terrible idea. Let me just start off with this, okay? For those of you who may have never seen a Marut stat block because you don't have the Tomophobes book, the very start, its armor class is 22, which is pretty significant, all right? Even for, like, high levels, it's a challenge rating 25. So you're fighting it, you're fighting it at a high level, all right? That's still significant. 22 is still significant. Its HP, again, using the, the medium that they give us, 432 HP, it's a 32 D10 plus 256 HP, and has a speed of 40 and can fly 30 feet. So the thing is fast and is tanky as all hell. It has, I think even when you compare it to like some of the demon lords in the book here, in the Tome of Foes, let me see. I'm actually generally curious here. I'm going to compare straight numbers. Uh, where's the page I'm looking for? Here we go. Demogorgon. It has more health than Demogorgon at 406 HP. Not a lot of difference, but it beats out Demogorgon. 337 beats him out. Grezet beats him out. Pretty much demon lords or these powerful devils don't have as much HP as this thing. Okay, so you want to try and fight it. You could kill it eventually. Take a very long time. It's very beefy. It also has an ability that says... It's immune to any spell of effect that would alter its form. So you can't even cheese it through Polymorph. You have to face it as is. Okay. Okay, cool. We'll, we'll fight it. We got a large group. We have a small army. We can take it on. Well, here's your follow-up problem. It is, as far as I know, to my knowledge, it is the only creature released in any official D&D publication that automatically hits with its attacks. It has three abilities. One of them is a teleportation, so if it finds you, it can teleport you back to the hall, and it'll follow you there, so you can fess up to your crimes and you breach a contract. And then the other two are actual attacks that deal damage. Both of them are an auto-hit. Unerring Slam, melee weapon attack, automatic hit. The Blazing Etic, every creature uh, 60 feet from it is hit. Period. You get hit, and then the damage is final. Like, there's no roll for damage. It's just you get hit, and you take damage. You know, there are things that say give disadvantage to the attack roll, you know. Or I can do, you know, there are abilities that modify attacks. But since there's no roll here, and all those abilities straight up say advantage, disadvantage, or re-roll the die, or whatever. Since the Marut is not rolling dice, fuck you. If the thing wants to punch you, it is going to punch you. And again, since it has a speed of 40... Outside of magical enhancements or being a monk, it's faster than you. So it will catch you, and it will punch you. And it can attack twice a turn. So essentially, it is guaranteed, in melee combat, it is guaranteed to do 120 damage a turn. Because it's punched to 60 damage flat. It is an automatic hit and 60 force damage. That's it. So if you really don't want to go back home because you breached your contract of a Marut, what the fuck are you going to do about it? 
you're going to need an army to stop it because it will cleave through people because it just hits because it wants to. Because you fucked up and it's coming for you. So outside the stat block, which I absolutely love, like I absolutely love what this thing can do, which is why I think it's great for like later in the game. But I also think it can provide one of the greatest campaign arcs for anyone. Okay, so imagine this, if you will. All right, whatever your reasoning is, let's say the players when the campaign starts, you know, maybe they're low level or maybe you start like level 10, whatever it is. The players start the campaign signing a contract in Sigil that is then placed in a Marut. All right? So in the very beginning of the campaign, the players are now legally bound to some form of contract. The campaign continues as normal. They do whatever it is they want to do in that campaign, go on any adventures that you have ready for them, whatever. It's just, essentially, it's your standard campaign with one exception. If they fuck up in any way and they're in breach of contract for any reason there is now an unstoppable force coming for them and it cannot be stopped granted again maruts do not rely on violence they are only violent if they need to be like if they're attacked they will fight back which is a terrible thing for you so i do like that i like the fact that they're not bloodthirsty it kind of balances out how powerful they are that if you willingly go with them, well, that's they'll take you away willingly. They won't murder your face, even though they easily could. But let's say, like, the players know that. The players know that Maru will come after them if they fuck up in any way. And then if that happens, it's either die fighting it, because unless they're, like, at the end of the game with an entire enchanted army and kingdom to fight this Maru, they're probably going to lose the fight. Let's say they go back to Sigil, depending on how the contract's written, they might be dead anyway. The, the contract is written in such a way that punishment is death or eternal service or something like that. That's it. The players are done. I think that's a great arc. I really do, because a lot of times, like, a lot of good stories, a lot of good D&D campaigns reveal the villain in some way at the beginning. You know of, like, the corrupted official, the evil king, or the mercenary captain. You learn about them early on in the game. And then throughout the campaign or throughout the story, it's you kind of going head-to-head with their forces and eventually confronting them at the climax. So with this Marut thing, it's similar to that. You do know there's this force out there, but it's not benevolent. It's not evil to you. You honestly have nothing to worry about so long as you follow that contract. That's why I think I like it. Because in any other campaign that has that whole, like, you know kind of who the villain is, your goal is to ultimately stop them. Here it's you're living your life and doing the adventures that you want, but there are rules you're now following. And it's not like game rules. It's rules that the players came up with at the beginning, signing some sort of contract. And they're bound to it. That is why, like, the Marut, I love it. Because not only just how much of an awesome force it is, and the story behind it of it's Justice Incarnate, but the fact that you can create such amazing hooks with this concept of you are bound here, don't fuck it up, you know? Yeah, you make a blood pack with a demon. You're going to eventually try and find a way to kill the demon or get yourself out of the contract, whatever. Here, no, no, no. You sign that contract. That's it. You're bound to that contract until time is up, if there even is a time limit in that contract. If you haven't had a chance to check out the Maruts, I suggest you do. Consider having a campaign with them in it. Not to fight, but just to be that force. You know, the, the judges and the policing force of the cosmos. It's amazing. So there it is, the the top five. Now, quick recap. Kobolds at five, I love their simplicity. I think they're a great way to start a campaign and introduce new players to the concepts of combat or create story arcs that involve, like, dragons or greater powers and cults. Followed by Uzes at four. Just this terrifying thing that can eat anything. And you can just kind of put them anywhere. As long as they feed, they don't care. Pretty simple, straightforward. The Skull Lords... 
besides being the best death metal album cover you could have, it's great having some high-powered undead that isn't a lich, an actual skeleton that's worth a damn. Pretty cool stuff. The actual Dreadnought. I mean, I, I don't need to say any more. It's out there in the cosmos. It's a Dreadnought. And everyone knows when you have the word Dreadnought, it's, you don't want to fight it. That, that's that. It is powerful. It can wreck you. You're done. And then again, the Marut. I've said enough about the Maruts. Just being an awesome power of justice and law, you know. So that'll do it for this one, all right? It's Monday release. I'm going to keep the most Sundays again. Always plan for Sundays unless I post otherwise. So keep up to date, Twitter and Facebook. I post updates there as needed for new episodes. So, yeah, I'm going to, you know, when I post this on Twitter and post this on Facebook, please, I'll ask there again. What do you think? Like, what are your, some of your favorite D&D creatures or D&D encounters even? Like, you don't necessarily have to say, like, oh, this is my favorite creature. You could be like, you know, I had an encounter with a lich once, and it was really cool because X, Y, Z. You know, like, a lot of stories get told of, you know, we got into a fight with this, and this happened. Share those stories. I think they're amazing. I know, like, they do it on Reddit also, the, the subreddits for D&D get them every now and then. So keep up the discussion. I want to hear about it. I think it'd be really cool. So without further ado, I bid you farewell until next time, which is going to be Sunday. Next Sunday, don't you worry. Take care. <laughs>